thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Last time we've looked at the the first four um, what we call the mini apocalypse, which is in Matthew and uh, Mark, Math, Mark chapter 16, Matthew chapter 24, um, and in Luke chapter 21, where the Lord seemed to speak about the end of the world, and we found out that actually He wasn't talking immediately about the end of the world, he was talking about the destruction of the temple. And one of the questions that came up last week was, well, if this text was about the destruction of the temple, then what's left for us? And that was a very good question. The, the point to be made is to always remember those four senses of Scripture. That Scripture has those four senses, the first one being the literal sense that essentially points to what was said by the author right when he was writing the text in the context in which he was writing. The second being the analogical text. By analogy, how does this text apply to our Lord? The third being the anagogical text, the one that applies to the end times or to our times, the church. And the fourth sense being the moral sense. And the way, if you recall, this is illustrated, and I'm repeating this for those who were not with us from the beginning, is that the notion of a temple the temple literally means the temple of Jerusalem, the building. So whenever somebody during the time of our Lord spoke of the temple, they meant the building. By analogy, the temple is also the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, because he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And John adds he wasn't talking about the temple in a literal sense. He was talking about the temple by analogy, speaking of his own body. The third sense, of course, is the temple as the believers. St. Paul tells us, you are, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And also, the, our, our, uh, each of us personally is a temple of the presence of the Lord when we're instead of grace. That's the moral sense. Right? Now, if you consider this, well, then you look at what happened to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple represented God's glory. It was a symbol of God's glory. Christ was not a symbol. It was the fulfillment of that symbol. This was the symbol. This was the reality. In, by, when you look at the accomplishment of this, you can also say that the temple is a symbol. The church is the reality. And likewise, 
the soul of a believer in a state of grace is the reality that this symbol pointed to depending on the sense you were looking at. The temple was destroyed. Christ died on the cross. This world and the church here on earth will come to an end. And it will be destroyed on earth. And we are going to die. Now the temple was destroyed and was glorified because it became the church. Christ died and rose. The church on earth is glorified in heaven. And when we die, the hope is we're going to raise with a glorified body. Do you see how it all works? Four senses combine to give us a full reality. So therefore, when Christ speaks of the destruction of the temple, literally he means the temple in Jerusalem, but then when you apply the four senses, you see how that text applies also to the, the end of the world, the end of time, to the church, to us, physically. Now clearly there are passages in Scripture where all, not all four senses apply. You have to exercise judgment. But that's the reality of those four senses, how important they are. And most of the time, some of the Protestant denominations will actually focus only on one sense. You need to realize that those four senses are found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and they are a treasure of the Church. Not every Christian knows about them. Right, so, for instance, Scott Hahn took 10 years to reconstruct them. He spent 10 years to reconstruct that, and he thought he discovered, he made a major discovery when it was actually in a footnote of the Catholic Bible. And then, in fact, the way he, he, he retells the story is that he was talking to a judge who was Catholic, a friend of his, and he said, uh, you know, this is the temple, precisely this image of the temple, how do you understand it? And this judge told him what I just told you. And it took him five years of hard work on a temple to figure this out. And he was looking at this guy, he was just a judge, not a theologian, who came up to the same answer and said, how did you find that out? And this judge just picked up a pocket Catholic Bible and said, well, right here, in the footnote, it just says it right there. So oftentimes we don't recognize the riches that we have available to us and what it took to come to that point. So keep that in mind every time you hear me talk about some events that you thought applied only to the future and, uh, and I am casting it in a light of the past. Uh, one more comment I want to make. Hopefully this is weaning you from the Gnostic tendency that is very prevalent today of thinking that somehow there are secrets in Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation. And all we have to do is discover the secrets, and then everything will be okay. You know, as Father alluded to in the, in the introduction, in introductory prayer, a mystery is not a secret. Okay? A child is a mystery. But a child is not a secret. You just look at a sleeping baby, and you know there's a mystery right there. But it's no secret. So when we speak of mysteries, we don't mean things that the, the smart guys are going to discover, and then once they discover, they're going to be able to save themselves. That's Gnosticism. It has nothing to do with our faith. Everything that we need to know has been given us. Everything has been revealed. Nothing else is lacking. What we have to do is contemplate the mystery, and not just understand it, but through it, love God. That's what we we're called to do. So the, the book of Revelation is not so much about secrets as it is about 
understanding the mystery of Jesus Christ. What is being revealed? The revelation. The apocalypsis. That's what we need to focus on. So hopefully, as you're, as you're being disappointed by my explanation, think of it as a good thing. Because it's weaning you from a very prevalent common tendency. Well, we need to find out when, you know, Al Gore just told us we just have 10 more years before the point of no return with the weather. You know, we're just waiting. We, 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 we're, we feed on this stuff. We want to know and be in control. It doesn't work this way. So that's what we saw last time. What I want to do now um, is show you that those texts of which the Lord spoke, you know, I'm, I'm talking about a very common, let me read it to you because some of you were not here with us. You know, Jesus was in the temple and he came out and the apostles are very proud of the temple and they should be. And I said, look how wonderful the temple is. And Jesus just said, you see all this? There won't be left a stone upon another. And when you realize that some of the stones are about 20 feet long, 40 feet wide, and six feet high, and weighing over a hundred ton, one stone. You're kind of a little bit shocked hearing him say that. And so they went to him and said, well, tell us, how is this going to happen? And then he goes on the, that explanation that I'm sure you've heard multiple times. You know, the sun is going to get darkened, and the moon and the stars are going to not give the light, etc., etc. And people get confused. They think that he's talking about the end of the world. He's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the temple. But because the temple is a microcosm, a mini-cosmos, and the universe is a macro-temple, what is said about the miniature is going to come to pass concerning the reality of that miniature. So that's how everything is connected. The four senses and that connection between the temple and the universe. But this is not something specific to Christ only. You here right now, what I want to do is show you how it was how the apostles themselves thought, of, thought that they were living in the last days. And so we can start in Acts chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. It's a very known passage. You've heard it before multiple times. This is when, this is Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, right? And remember in the Hebrew calendar, Pentecost comes before the Day of Awe, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is the Day of the Lord. That's how it was understood by the Jews at the time, that this was the Day of Judgment. And to them, during the ten days that separated that feast from the, feast of Trump, from the, 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 the next feast over, those were the ten days when the books in heaven were opened, three of them, the books of the living, the books of those who are condemned, and those in between. And that's when God decided which way he's going to go on everyone. That was the understanding. I'm not saying this is the truth of heaven. I'm saying this was what the, the prevalent understanding of the time and any Christian of a Jewish background looking at the text would interpret it this way. That's important for us because it sheds light on the meaning. Alright? So here we are. The, the, the Holy Spirit came down on them as tongues of fire and then it came out. Beginning verse, verse 12, they were all astounded and bewildered and said to one another, what does this mean? But others said, scoffing, they have had too much new wine. And Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and, pro and proclaimed to them, you are Jews. Now notice, you who are Jews. In Jerusalem, during the Feast of Pentecost, because it's a feast where you're required to come and do pil for, for pilgrimage, people are coming from all over the place. But Peter immediately singles only the Jews. 
for a very specific reason. You are Jews, indeed, all of you staying in Jerusalem. Not only just Jews, those who live in Jerusalem. So he ignores all those who are not coming from this place and just focuses on those. So this is a very specific message. Let this be known to you and listen to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now he's quoting from Joel. It will come to pass in the last days. It will come to pass in the last days that I will pour out a portion of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Indeed, upon my servants and my handmaids, I will pour out a portion of my spirit in those days. In those days, meaning what? Last days. Right? And they shall prophesy. And I will work wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and a cloud of smoke. Blood, fire, and a cloud of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and splendid day of the Lord. That's Yom Kippur. He's not talking about any specific day. He's, talking, he's not talking about any day. He's talking about a very specific day on a Jewish calendar. The day of the Lord. And it shall be that everyone shall be saved who calls on the name of the Lord. Again, you who are Israelites, you are Israelites, hear these words. And then he tells them how they basically, um, they, they went on and, and condemned him. So, what is my point to you? Typically, a modern reader will get to this point, and here's Peter saying, it will come to pass in the last days. And what do they think? Right? The end of the world. Sometime in the future. Right? Why is Peter talking to Jews and to people in Jerusalem about what's going to happen at the end of time? Does this make sense to you? You understand? So you've got to let go of that focus on you know, the year 10,243 A.D. We can't think this way. We have to put ourselves in the context. Something very specific is on, my, on Peter's mind. What happens is that in the book of Joel, Joel is saying something very specific. In the last days, before the day of the Lord, this is a Hebraism. It's a Jewish expression indicating Yom Kippur, indicating the day of judgment. Alright? So it's a day of judgment. Now to the Jews... If they read the prophets, and if they're comfortable with the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, we've seen some of those, a day of judgment is what? Is it the end of the world? Is it when God judges the living and the dead? No. What is a day of judgment? It's a political event. It's a political event. Remember, their concept of the kingdom of heaven was what? a military reality here down on earth. Right? The concept was not the kingdom of heaven where all the saints and the angels live. There was no notion that, oh, we're going to be united to the angels. That was the farthest on earth in a thought. What was on their thought was the establishment of the kingdom of the Messiah the Messiah King, who's going to subdue the entire earth and make them run the show. That's what is in their mind. So a day of judgment is what? It's a political event. It's a military operation. It is something physical, visible, 
tangible. And all the oracles of Isaiah, all the oracles of Ezekiel, all the woes that were pronounced on nations, always translated into wars. Alright? That's what it means. This is what is in their mind. So when he says, the last days, it's the end of a kingdom. It's the end of an era. It's an end of a period, of a dynasty. That's what an end of an age is. It isn't the physical, mechanical understanding of the world based on scientific notation. So don't impose that modern filter on this text or else you'll just go off on a tangent and it'd be gone. Alright? What did Joel say? He said basically something very simple. He was, he was, Joel's message was addressed against the Jerusalem. And he said, in the last days, there shall be those who survive. So it's like a message, a good news and a bad news wrapped in one. There shall be those who survive. What's the implication? Not some. Most will not. You get it? Most will not. So what Peter is saying to them, hear me, O people of Judea, and you who live in Jerusalem. The, prophets, the, the prophecy of Joel is now being realized. This is the time. And there, there, there shall be those who survive. Christ said nothing, nothing less. If I take you back to the Gospels, the Lord said himself, For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days, before the flood, there were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and carried them all away, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And again, this is not the end of times. This is his coming in power. This is the presence of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord. The coming of the Son of Man, the day of the Lord, the same thing. means exactly the same thing. Now, in the case of Noah, there shall be those who survive, who escape, right? How many? Eight. He's comparing what is going to happen next to what happened in Noah. In Noah's case, all right? Same thing is echoed by Peter. No difference. He's repeating the same message. If we now move on to... The letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. St. Paul says, but understand this, there will be terrifying times in the last days. People will be self-centered and lovers of money, proud, haughty, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, irreligious. Now, that is very difficult not to, uh, you know... <laughs> kind of apply to our times, isn't it? Callous, implacable, slanderous, licentious, brutal, hating what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, as they make a pretense of religion but deny its power. Reject them. Notice. How is that bracketed? This whole list of, of qualifiers. What is it bracketed in? It's bracketed between what? Understand this, there will be terrifying times in the last days. He's describing what the ter terror is all about. It's that kind of behavior, right? And what does he end, end with? 
reject them. What does that imply about Timothy? When is he living? In the last days. Because he says there will be terrifying things in the last days. He enumerates what they are and they tell Timothy to reject them. So Timothy is living in the last days. It's the same concept that St. Paul has, that St. Peter had. We're living in the last days. In Hebrew, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In times past, God spoke in partial various ways to our ancestors through the prophets. In these last days, he spoke to us through a son whom he made heir to all things, of all things, and through whom he created the universe. All right? Again, the insistence that these are the last days. James, St. James, chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Come now, you rich, weep and wail over your impending, impending miseries. Your wealth has rotted away, your clothes have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and that corrosion will be a testimony against you. It will devour your flesh like a fire. You have stored up treasure for the last days. Do you think he's talking about those who will live in 10,143 AD? No. He's writing to people living right there and then. Behold, the wages you withheld from the workers who harvested your fields are crying aloud, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury. Notice the past tense. You have lived, right? Not future. On earth in luxury and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. Where do they do slaughter? Bingo. You see the, temp the temple-centric view? The day of slaughter. Right? So, once more, let me actually keep on going because he, 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 he adds this. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous one. He offers you no resistance. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. What is the coming of the Lord? The day of slaughter. That's the coming of the Lord. That's the day of judgment. That's the last day. All of these expressions mean the same thing. They're all combined to mean the same thing. The Lord is coming and he's going to visit his people. Right. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You too must be patient. Make your hearts firm because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Is at hand. Meaning what? It's right now. It's imminent. No, no futuristic perspective here, is there? It's right now. Now, notice what he's talking about, in, in, in case you're wondering, he's talking about those who are rich and made themselves so by taking advantage of others. All right? and, and who cling to their riches more than they love the Lord. All right? So in, in our time, if, if, you know, it's, it's fairly easy to tell who, who, who is clinging to his riches more than clinging to the Lord, uh, I would say that if anyone who considers mass to be less important, less precious to them than a million dollars, anyone who's in that, in that state of mind is in trouble. It's that simple. Uh, second letter of St. Peter, chapter 3. So, we've seen the Gospels. We've seen Acts, which is written by St. Luke. We've seen St. Paul. We've seen St. James. Here's St. Peter. 
Notice, starting with verse 3, notice, first of all, that in the last days, scoffers will come to scoff, living according to their own desires, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? From the time when our ancestors fell asleep, everything has remained as it was from the beginning of creation. They deliberately ignore the fact that the heavens existed of old, and earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Though these, the world that then existed was destroyed, deluged with water. Through these, I'm sorry. The present heavens and earth have been reserved by the same word for fire. Right? So the previous heavens and earth have been destroyed by the deluge. The present heaven and earth are reserved to be destroyed by fire. Why fire? What do you think by fire? Because the Holy Spirit... But think very concretely. Again, think temple. Think temple. Think liturgy. Don't think materialistically outside of the temple, outside of the liturgy. What is destroyed on the altar by fire? The sacrifice. That what is slaughtered is destroyed and offered to the glory of God. That's why. The destruction by fire is an act of God for His greater glory. That's how this is all liturgical. All right? We miss all these things because we're so, you know, we're so attuned to the world and not so much attuned to the liturgy. And since on our altar there, aren't, there isn't much of a fire, uh, we, we, we can't relate anymore to those words. Right? We're more, we can relate to, you know, a nuclear bomb or, you know, or sun flaring or some such event. This is how we interpret that stuff. Completely outside the liturgy. But that's now how it was understood back then. Kept for the day of judgment and of destruction of the godless. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. That's one of those really uh, troublesome verses that has been used by many to actually count how many years we have ahead of us using the book of Revelation and translating every day in the book of Revelation in terms of a thousand years. Okay, this has been a very common way of interpreting the book of Revelation in terms of years. Okay, what is Peter saying when he says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day? Does he really mean a thousand? All right. Anytime you find these numbers, subject them to a little bit of analysis and you see how ridiculous this becomes. Is it a, a thousand plus zero seconds? Could it be a thousand and one second? Did you understand what I'm saying to you? The, the, the pure mathematical approach here breaks down the meaning. What is a thousand? Many. Many. Right? What is he trying to say? He's trying to tell them that the way the Lord views time and the way the Lord works through time is very different than ours. Right? And he's basically echoing what St. James was telling them was telling his readers in a previous letter because he was saying, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That's what he's saying. That's all that this means. Be patient. All right? Be patient. St. Jude, chapter 1, verse 17 through 25. But you, beloved, remember the words spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. For they told you, in the last time, there will be scoffers who will live according to their own godless desires. He's basically quoting Peter. 
Okay? I just read to you the passage from the letter of Peter. Alright? And again, what is he seeing? He's seeing it as the last times. It is now. Not tomorrow, not in 10,000 years. It's right now. Again, at chapter, uh, the first letter of Peter, verse 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen soldiers of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In the foreknowledge of God the Father, I'm going to skip these verses and just go down to um, verse 4. To an, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by the power of God are safeguarded through faith to a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the final time or in the last hour. In this you rejoice, although now for a little while you may have to suffer through various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that is perishable, even, even, even though, no, more perishable than, than gold that is perishable, be tested by fire, may prove to be, to be for praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying, right now you're going through trials because you are going to be tested by fire. You're tested by fire at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So all of this, all of this be for his glory. And I think this is the sticky point for many of us. It's this business of everything for the glory of God. So what's in it for us? What's in it for me? But if we, if we do understand and accept that everything is for the great glory of God, and if we can rejoice in that, if we can rejoice in doing everything for the greater glory of God, doing something just because it makes God happy, for no other reason, then all that makes a lot more sense to us. What he's saying is that you have an inheritance. You see, this is new thinking. This is where you can start seeing the Christian thought departing from the Jewish thought. Right? Because he's telling them, this, you have an inheritance. Who inherits? Children. Children inherit. Right? And they inherit from their father. So you are the children of your father in heaven, and therefore, your inheritance is in heaven. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who, by the power of God, are safeguarded through faith to a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the final time. So what is the purpose of the revelation of Jesus Christ? What is the purpose of, what is the revelation of Jesus Christ? You will see that essentially the revelation of Jesus Christ is the mystery that is hidden from all ages as St. Paul speaks of it. And that mystery is the church. So that through the day of judgment, the coming of the Lord, and the judgment, the church, may be revealed. That is the whole purpose. And I have a lot more to say about that, but we will cover it in due time. One more thing I'd like to point, to you, to point out to you from this letter, how St. Paul looks at Scripture. He says, Concerning the salvation, prophets who prophesied about the grace, about the grace that was to be yours, Right? They prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Okay? Search and investigated it. Investigating the time and circumstances that the Spirit of Christ 
within them indicated when it testified in advance to the suffering destined for Christ and the glories to follow them. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. So when they were prophesying, they were not serving themselves. But you. What is the whole purpose of the prophecies? Of all the prophets? You. That's who the, prophet, the prophecy were written for. Not the Jews who were living in that time. That was not the final goal of that prophecy. The final goal was you. Them back then and us today. That's what this was written for. And then he adds, with regards to the things that have now been announced to you by those who preach the good news to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Right? With regard to what? To the things that have now been announced to you. The things that have... What are the things that have now been announced to you? It's the church. It's how you are a Christian living in the church. How you conduct yourself. How the sacraments are going to fill you with grace and get you to get to heaven. Alright? Those are the things which distinguish the new covenant from the old. By those who preach the good news to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now listen carefully. Things into which angels longed to look. Things into which angels longed to look. Our last segment before we actually open the book of the Revelation is going to be on angels. But this is astounding. Angels did not know about those things. Angels did not know about the fulfillment of the mystery and the birth of the church and the graces that is afforded to us in the church and they longed to look into those things. We underestimate the church. This is something unbelievable. So this is the context in which the apostles were living. It was a time of expectation for something that is going to happen imminently. In their time. Not in some faraway future. But they did not expect a physical, material fulfillment of the kingdom of God on earth. Why? The words of St. Peter that I just read to you. Where is their inheritance? Is it on earth? It's in heaven. So there is no concept of a material kingdom on earth. It's one in heaven. The Lord himself said, didn't say anything different, right? My kingdom is not of this world. That is a stunning repudiation of the messianic messianic hope that the Jews had. Because their hope was in a materialistic, historical kingdom. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. There was no way they could accept him as a Messiah after he said that. That does not mean that his kingdom is not in the world. Those are two different things. He's saying, my kingdom, where my throne is, is outside this world. Therefore, nothing in this world can actually destroy it. Because nothing in this world can reach my throne, can take away the power that is mine. Nothing. Therefore, my kingdom is the only one that can rule this world. Do you understand? 
That's a very important distinction. This is the point he was making. So, the expectation, therefore, was not for some sort of a grand finale that will establish a military kingdom forever and ever on earth. It was for something altogether different. And Christ prepared his apostles for this in the book of Matthew. Go back to the book of Matthew and read the parables about the kingdom of heaven. How does he compare the, what does he compare the kingdom of heaven to? It's like a field in which the Son of Man sown the good seeds and the evil one sown the bad seeds, right? You remember that parable? This is the kingdom of heaven. This is not the world, right? This is not the world. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is how he describes it. What is the kingdom of heaven on earth? It's the church. So you're going to have good seeds and bad seeds in the church. And we are not here to separate them. This is a job left for the angels. And again, what is the kingdom of heaven? It's like a little mustard seed. The smallest of all seeds. But then when it grows, it becomes a big tree and the, and the birds of the air come and take refuge under its... Right? So all the, these imagery about the kingdom of heaven is not a military powerful thing. It's not. It's hidden. Right? It's sacramental. You can't see it physically. You cannot see the fullness of the kingdom using your physical eyes because it's supernatural. You have to see it through the eyes of faith. That's the important message here. Now, when you look, when you take, therefore, the book, of, the, the book of the Apocalypse and you put it into this context, in the context of all the passages that are read to you, which, incidentally, many of the commentators simply don't do for reasons that really surprise me, you have the same approach. Here is some of the passages of the book of Revelation. The uh, book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 19. Write down, therefore, what you have seen and what is happening and what will happen afterwards. This word afterwards means soon. It doesn't mean in, in 2,000 years from now. It means right now, right after. Okay? It's not my favorite translation, but it will do for now. Up, uh, the, the book of Revelation again, chapter 2, verse 11. I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. Does this suggest to you he's going to come in 2,000 years? When the Lord speaks this way, is he trying to say, I'm coming quickly. Oh, but in my view of things, one day is like 1,000 years. So quickly might mean, you know, two days. So wait 2,000 years. That's quickly. You think so? In the context of all the passages I read to you, would that explanation make sense? It doesn't. I'm coming quickly means I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may take your crown. So the day of judgment is coming and you will be crowned in heaven if you hold fast to what you have right now. Chapter 2, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will enter his house and dine with him and he with me. Okay? This is a beautiful m image. Actually, uh, uh, the, the, the image of the divine mercy is based on that verse, incidentally. Because you see him, what do you see behind the Lord in that image? The door. He entered. 
is in your heart. That's the meaning of that door behind. He's not, he, the door got opened. Right? The door got opened. But what do you think, what door would most appropriately apply here? Which door? How about the Nicanor gate? How about the beautiful gate of the temple? Alright? Once more. Remember, he told them, behold, in Matthew, the Lord told them, behold, your, your house is left empty and desolate when he left the temple. That was it. Right? But that door isn't just our heart, it was also the temple. And uh, chapter 4 in the book of Revelation, after this I had a vision of an open door to heaven and I heard the trumpet-like voice that had spoken to me before saying, come up here and I will show you what must happen afterwards. Again, afterwards can also be translated as soon. In chapter 10 of the book of Revelation, we'll read the following, verse 4 through 7. When the seven thunders had spoken, I was about to write it down, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have spoken, and, but do not write it down. That suggests delay. The last time we've heard about somebody sealing a message was in the book of Daniel. When Daniel was given a message by Gabriel, he, he was told to seal up the message because its time had not yet come. So this is the only instance in the book of Revelation where there is an event taking place that suggests future fulfillment, not present fulfillment because of that sealing up. If it suggests future fulfillment, it means, by negation, that that which is not sealed up is present. Right? Otherwise, there's, if everything is in the future, then that makes no sense. Everything is in the future, everything is going to be fulfilled in the future, what's the point of sealing it up? That becomes absurd. Unless most of what is being talked of is fulfilled right now, then what is sealed up will be fulfilled in the future. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his, hand, his right hand to heaven and swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and earth and sea and all that, it, that is in them, there shall be no more delay. At the time when you hear the seventh angel with his trumpet, the mysterious plan of God shall be fulfilled. By the way, also, also translating this is the mystery of God shall be fulfilled. The mystery of God shall be fulfilled. There shall be no more delay. That doesn't mean, again, something will happen in the future. Something will happen right now. The, chapter 22, verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is, is the one who keeps the prophetic message of this book. Verse 12 of chapter 22, Behold, I am coming soon. I bring with me the recompense I will give to each according to his deeds. So, all through the book of Revelation, we have the same kind of urgency that we saw in the other letters and in the Gospel. It forms a cohesive whole. There's absolutely no reason why we should take the book of Revelation, pull it out of its context, and then just project it in the future, and then lose the fundamental meaning that it was intended to convey. Um, two more... Two more quotations I think is worth going through. First Peter verse four, chapter four, seven through nineteen. One Peter four, seven through nineteen. Verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and sober for prayers. 
Above all, let your love for one another be intense, because love covers a multitude of sins. Okay. What do you think St. Peter thinking of when he said that the end of all things is at hand? He's thinking about the end of the world? That's it? In fact, I mentioned that to you last time, in the 19th century, there was a French priest by the name of Albert Loisy. Father Loisy was a brilliant theologian, and he stumbled on those passages, and he declared right now that Peter was actually wrong. They were hoping so much for the coming of Christ that he took his desire for reality. And as a result, Peter misled so many with him, making us believe that Christ was going to come soon, and Christ didn't come, and all we were left with is the church. That was a major crisis of the faith. Not a minor one, a major one. For that priest who left the church, became an atheist, died an atheist. And on the Protestant side, many, many also lost the faith over these passages. Why? A simple reason. They did not follow the interpretive rules that the church had set forth. They read this in a very literalistic, materialistic way. They thought Peter was convinced the end of the world was coming. Which is nonsensical if you take two seconds and think about it. Because what is the great commission that Christ gave them? What is the great commission? Why would he say that if the end of time is coming? Makes no sense, does it? See, when you don't read, when you, there's always this hypnotic effect. I can take some, you know, sand through your eyes and, and, I, and I can hypnotize you and make you think, oh, wow, there's this huge error in scripture. Because I take it out of context and, and I get it to say whatever I want it to say. It's easy to do. We have to be very careful to understand Scripture in the context of all of Scripture and not take it piecemeal. Peter is not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the old covenant and the birth of the new. That's what he's talking about. To us, it might not seem like a big deal. Oh, what's the big deal? Old covenant, new covenant. You know? Reading was salt before reading was salt. Now they had beer, we had beer. Well, what's the big deal? We're sort of expecting something else. We want something more. Something that has more, you know, bizarre. Something that is more enticing. More, more. Right? We're expecting something, I don't know, maybe able to fly, become Superman or whatever. Why? Because we are rooted into the material world. Right? If I had told you that the end of the time meant that every person who's baptized would automatically get a million bucks every year, every year without doing anything, just because of the graces of God, he'd get a million bucks. Now, wouldn't that, that, you know, I'm sure I'll have a lot more people in my Bible study. See, why? If you really think about it, and that's always the example I gave for people who don't want to go to church or don't have time to pray. You know, the, the proverbial, I don't have 15 minutes to pray in the evening. And my answer to them is, yes, you do, but you don't want to. No, 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 I, really, I, I have all these things to do, my cooking, day. right, okay, fine, here. Uh, how about if I told you that every time you sit down to pray for 15 minutes, I'll pay you $100,000. Would you find time? I haven't yet found somebody who told me no. Because I'm making $2 million. I haven't found somebody saying that to me. I'm just waiting for somebody to tell me that. But I haven't found that. Suddenly, when I say this to some person, they just prep up, they start to think about it, 
there's a gleam in their eyes, and suddenly, yeah, yeah, I can make 15 minutes. It's no problem. Okay, what if they're dry and, and they're boring? And, well, no problem. There's $100,000 at the end. I'll sit through. Make $100,000. Not a problem. What does that tell us? It tells us where our heart is. What we really want to adore. That's what it's telling us. Right? Who is really our God? Our God is in whom we find pleasure. That's our God. Now don't get me wrong. He knows that. He's on the cross. He died for us. He knows that. That's why he said, if you who are evil, and your child comes to you and asks you for a piece of bread, you don't give him a stone. Even though you're evil, that's what he meant. We have all these evil tendencies in us that built in from the fall. He knows that. He's patient with us. He loves us. He's not expecting much from us. To, be, to do it on our own, that is. But he expects us to be perfect. To be perfect. You see, many of us, many of us, know that the Lord is merciful. We like that. And we should. And it's a wonderful thing that the Lord is merciful. Thank God He's merciful. Lord, thank you for being merciful on me. You know, it's, it's a wonderful prayer. Lord, have mercy. It's wonderful. But let's not forget that He's just. He's just. And God is merciful on those who repent, not on the unrepentant. Because He will not be mocked with. You don't mock with God. He has patience, but not forever. If He did have patience forever, no one would be in hell. And that would be unjust. That would be unjust. So, why was I saying that? There's a reason why I went there. Um, yes, the end of all things is at hand. I don't know why I said all that. Be it as it may, going back to 1 Peter, notice what he says, Therefore be serious and sober for prayers. Above all, let your love for one another be intense. Why? Because the day of the Lord is at hand, meaning it's a day of judgment. And what is going to save you is charity. Charity saves you more than anything else. Right? And charity flows from your heart to that extent that you know about yourself. <laughs> the more you know how wicked you are, and how sinful you are, and how selfish you are, and how much God has shown grace and mercy, the more you, in turn, will be able to be merciful to others. Because you really have no excuse. I have no excuse to be upset with anybody. None. I don't have any excuse to be upset with anybody. Because fundamentally, if I look at myself in the light of the grace of God, I don't deserve anything good. By my actions, I don't deserve it. Now, St. Therese of Lisieux may say differently, but I'm not St. Therese of Lisieux. So therefore, if I want to be truly, if truly I'm asking for God's mercy, I'm saying, God, have mercy on me, knowing who I am, what, what do you think I should do towards others? I have to have mercy on them. No matter what they do, I, I have to, I'm compelled. Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite. And he told us what he would do with these people. The servant comes to him, says, have mercy on me. Are you 10,000? And he says, okay, go, I forgive you. Don't even pay me, I forgave you. And the guy goes and finds another servant who owes him 200, and he's ready to beat him up, because he can't pay him. That's one of the parables. Go check what happens to that guy. I don't want to be that guy. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that guy. Now, St. John, in his letter, 
John 1, 18 through 29. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist was coming, so now many Antichrists have appeared. Thus, we know this is the last hour. Here we go again. The Antichrist has appeared. What did we miss? I mean, how did you, when did this happen, that the Antichrist showed up and we didn't know about it? What he did. Okay? What is the Antichrist? Here's St. John. Who is the liar? Whoever denies, whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, whoever denies the Father and the Son, this is the Antichrist. Plain and simple. This is the Antichrist. Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, whoever denies the Father and the Son, this is the Antichrist. All right? It's kind of a little bit disappointing because you, you, know, you expect the Antichrist to be something really special. Again, we're, we're, we're you know, on this drive to have our, our senses fed. We want to see this huge monstrous thing. And then we think, whoa, yeah, you know, run, do something, get scared. What? Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, whoever denies that Jesus is the there's a bunch of those. And they don't look particularly scary, do they? That's the Antichrist. Now, there is another segment in Scripture that talks not about the last days, but the new age, which shows you that there is a clear separation between the last days and in the new age. Matthew 19, 27, 30. Peter said to him in reply, We have given up everything and followed you. What will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Amen, I say to you, I say to you that you who have followed me in the new age, when the Son of Man is seated on this throne of glory, will yourselves sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So in the new age, when the Son of Man is seated on his throne of glory. Let me ask you this question. Is the Son of Man seated on his throne of glory right now as I speak? Was he there yesterday? How about a thousand years ago? How about 2,000 years ago? Not always, no. No. Bingo. The resurrection. So when is the new age? When does it start? Bingo. The new age started. So you see, here's a really important thing you need to keep in mind. There is an overlap. There's a period, the last days, where the old overlaps with the new. It isn't this kind of clean-cut separation. All right, the old ends right here. Draw a line. Now, no, that's not how it happened. The old overlaps with the new for about one generation. One generation. When Christ died and rose to heaven, up to the destruction of the temple, the old overlapped with the new. Makes sense. You still had the temple. You still had the temple sacrifice going on. What you had next to it? You had the Eucharist, didn't you? The old and the new existed in parallel for one generation. And then the old was completely let go of and the new moved on. All right? And it makes sense. It's practical. It's practical. And we'll see why in the next two lectures. In Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 55, this is taken from Our Lady. And this is very important for our perspective because... Just as you have folks who are only looking at those passages in the futuristic sense, you have a whole bunch of other folks who look at those passages as though fulfilled in the past and there is no application to the future. It's done. 
the book of Revelation, it's finished. All those passages, they're for the past. None of them will apply in the future. And both of them, as far as, 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 as I'm concerned, are mistaken. Here's Our Lady. For he has looked upon his handmaid's lowliness. Behold, from now on, will all ages, plural, call me blessed. All ages. Mary doesn't mean all generations. An age is not a generation. An age is, a, is linked to a dynasty. Is linked to a political system. She's saying that across all of those, no matter how these change, she will always be called blessed. It's a much stronger statement than simply saying, all generations will call me blessed. Okay? Because the ages are always connected to a political reality. So no matter which political kingdom is governing, no matter which political kingdom is in control of the whole earth, people will call her blessed. Because there are many ages within the last age. That's a confusing thing. She's not the only one to say this. St. Paul says the same thing. All right. 1 Corinthians 10, 8, 11. Let us not indulge in immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell within a single day. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and suffer death by serpents. Let us not grumble as some of them did and suffer death by the destroyer. These things happen to them as an example, and they have been written down as a warning to us, upon whom the end of the ages has come. He quotes from three events that took place in the Exodus, all the way from the time when they, um, uh, when they, when they built that uh, golden calf, and 23,000 23, of them died, when they died by serpents, when they also um, grumbled and died by the destroyer. He's taking the period of the Exodus, which is always represented, which always represents and symbolizes the life of Israel, and he's saying that upon us, the end of all these ages, all the past ages has come. It's upon us, right now. Ephesians 2, 1, 8, verse 8 and 9. Jesus is seated... Uh, um, Christ raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness to us in Christ. Again, the notion of the ages to come. There isn't one age. There are many in the new age. Multiple cycles. One covenant but multiple political realization through it all. All right? I'll, I'll just list the other ones. Ephesians 3, pay particular attention. I'm going to talk about this next time. Anyhow, verse 9, this is a very important one. And uh, likewise, the letter to the Colossians, 1, 18 through 29. Uh, these are very important passages. In 1 Timothy, chapter 1 through 13, 18, in verse uh, 17, he said, he, he, uh, St. Paul wrote, to the king of ages incorruptible, invisible, the only God, honor and glory forever, ever. Amen. To the king of ages. So he doesn't conceive of only one age, but multiples. And then in, in the letter of St. Jude, chapter 1, verse 24 through 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority from ages past, now, and for ages to come. All right? 
ages past, now, and ages to come. So there's these notions of the old age, the new, old covenant, the new age, the new covenant. There is a pe period of time, the last days, where the, the two are actually overlapping. And then in the new age, there are multiples of those that are going to appear through a cycle. But through it all, Christ reigns. That's the important thing. This is the view they had. This is how they understood all those texts, including the book of Revelation. And that's what we have to understand. So next time, we're going to focus on the situation of the Christians during those 40 years and then beyond and understand what they were dealing with. It will shed light on all of this. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.